It makes sense that what we should be doing at a given time, in general, is exactly what we feel like doing, exactly what we prefer. I'm not making a normative statement here. I'm just pointing out that evolution has equipped us with feelings and drives appropriate to our success, hasn't it? Isn't that the whole point of developing a complex nervous system with motivations and rewards, pains and preferences? Conscious experience describes relevant events in the world specifically in terms of the implicit values of the animal. This is tasty. That is not. This is frustrating. That is satisfying. Everywhere preferences provide momentum. Keep moving toward the greener grass. I've been thinking about this in the context of chimpanzees because they seem to me to provide insight into a primitive human way of life. Not recent, but truly archaic. What are they like? The film series Chimp Empire documents the lives of chimps at Ngogo in, in Uganda. I've been watching the series to get a sense of what it is like to be a chimpanzee living in its natural habitat, exactly the kind of habitat for which it is adapted. So I expect to see a good fit between the animal's behavior and what is optimal for the species to survive and reproduce over the long run. I think something can be learned about humankind and about consciousness generally. I would never contest that these animals lack consciousness. As far as I'm concerned, and speaking as a neuroscientist, chimpanzees are every bit as conscious as human beings. They are having a rich, subjective experience just as we are. Certain things make them unhappy, frightened, or cause them pain. Other things bring them pleasure, arouse excitement, and comfort them. I'll try to examine a few behaviors in the chimps and consider the hypothesis that each individual acts according to what it wants in each moment, and that this provides the best fitness for the species. First, I observe the behavior of infants and their mothers. The infant chimpanzee clings to its mother and is carried wherever she goes. It suckles milk at will, and as time goes on, begins to detach from the mother and climb about. It sees what other chimps around it are doing, and it plays with them curiously and tries to emulate what they do. Mostly, the other chimps are tolerant of the infants climbing around them and being a nuisance. If the infant climbs up too high or wanders too far, the mother comes over and scoops it up or pulls it down from its branch to hold on to it again. Certainly, the infant is doing exactly what it wants to do within its physical limits. Many of these physical limits are imposed by other chimps, especially the mother. We could say that the behaviors of the mother are instinctual, which is true, but it might undermine the more obvious explanation that she does what she wants to do. She makes the world around her, including her child, act according to her preferences. She loves her infant and wants to keep it safe and comfortable. It is valuable and meaningful to her to be a mother and care for her infant. If she didn't want to care for her infant, she would simply walk away and abandon it, or knock it down and kill it. There is no law in her community against this, no child protective services making their rounds. Probably not even a social taboo against it, but it doesn't happen because chimp females have evolved feelings and propensities that promote the fitness of their young. I propose a general principle for conscious animals that when they are in a stable environment to which they are adapted, pursuing what each individual wants is the ideal lifestyle to adopt. It's that simple. Does this produce sociopathic tendencies? Nope, quite the opposite. Chimpanzees are intelligent social creatures. They groom one another, form friendships, hunt, patrol, and eat fruit together. You might argue that a single 
chimp doesn't often wander off and climb into the canopy to eat fruit by itself. Isn't that evidence that they don't do what they want? I mean, isn't one of them hungry now at a time when the rest of the troop is not eating? Sure, but the individual does not want to be alone. If the individual wanted to go off into the canopy alone, it could. There doesn't appear to be anything standing in the way of that option physically or socially. It probably even happens at times. But generally, the chimps prefer to stay in the company of others. So an individual would rather wait for someone to join them. They have reason to fear being caught alone by competing groups that might enter the territory. Having described my basic observations of chimpanzee infants and mothers, let's consider the behavior of human infants and their mothers in primitive tribes. First, how do primitive tribes work? Let's get a general idea from a book called Tribe by Sebastian Younger. He writes, quote, One study in the 1960s found that nomadic Ikung people of the Kalahari Desert needed to work as little as 12 hours a week in order to survive, roughly one quarter the hours of the average urban executive at the time. The camp is an open aggregate of cooperating persons which changes in size and cooperation from day to day, anthropologist Richard Lee noted with clear admiration in 1968. The members move out each day to hunt and gather and return in the evening to pool the collected foods in such a way that every person present receives an equitable share. Because of the strong emphasis on sharing and the frequency of movement, surplus accumulation is kept to a minimum. The Kalahari is one of the harshest environments in the world, and the Yi Kung were able to continue living a Stone Age existence well into the 1970s, precisely because no one else wanted to live there. The Yi Kung were so well adapted to their environment that during times of drought, nearby farmers and cattle herders abandoned their livelihoods to join them in the bush because foraging and hunting were a more reliable source of food. The relatively relaxed pace of Yi Kung life even during times of adversity, challenged long-standing ideas that modern society created a surplus of leisure time. It created exactly the opposite, a desperate cycle of work, financial obligation, and more work. The Yi Kung had far fewer belongings than Westerners, but their lives were under much greater personal control. Among anthropologists, the Yi Kung are thought to present a fairly accurate picture of how our hominid ancestors lived for more than a million years before the advent of agriculture. Genetic adaptations take around 25,000 years to appear in humans, so the enormous changes that came with agriculture in the last 10,000 years have hardly begun to affect the gene pool. Early humans would most likely have lived in nomadic bands of around 50 people, much like the Yi Kung. They would have experienced high levels of accidental injuries and deaths. They would have countered domineering behavior by senior males by forming coalitions within the group. They would have been utterly intolerant of hoarding or selfishness. They would have occasionally endured episodes of hunger, violence, and hardship. They would have practiced extremely close and involved child care, and they would have done almost everything in the company of others. They would have almost never been alone." Unquote. All right, with that vision of primitive life in mind, what about infants and their mothers in primitive society? Younger writes, quote, Infants in hunter-gatherer societies are carried by their mothers as much as 90% of the time, which roughly corresponds to carrying rates among other primates. One can get an idea of how important this kind of touch is to primates from an infamous, ex infamous experiment conducted in the 1950s by a primatologist and psychologist named Harry Harlow. Baby rhesus monkeys were separated from their mothers 
and presented with the choice of two kinds of surrogates, a cuddly mother made of terry cloth or an uninviting mother made out of wire mesh. The wire mesh mother, however, had a nipple that dispensed warm milk. The babies took their nourishment as quickly as possible and then rushed back to cling to the terry cloth mother, which had enough softness to provide the illusion of affection. Clearly, touch and closeness are vital to the health of baby primates, including humans. In America during the 1970s, mothers maintained skin-to-skin contact with babies as little as 16% of the time, which is a level that traditional societies would probably consider a form of child abuse. Also unthinkable would be the modern practice of making young children sleep by themselves. In two American studies of middle-class families during the 1980s, 85% of young children slept alone in their own room, a figure that rose to 95% among families considered well-educated. Northern European societies, including America, are the only ones in history to make very young children sleep alone in such numbers. The isolation is thought to make children bond intensely with stuffed animals for reassurance. Only in Northern European societies do children go through the well-known developmental stage of bonding with stuffed animals. Elsewhere, children get their sense of safety from the adults sleeping near them. The point of making children sleep alone, according to Western psychologists, is to make them self-soothing. But clearly that runs contrary to our evolution. Humans are primates. We share 98% of our DNA with chimpanzees, and primates almost never leave infants unattended because they would be extremely vulnerable to predators." It seems to me that we get in the way of our own predilections. Mothers want to be with their infants and yet adopt modern practices under the direction of cultural influences that go against nature. Does this make us happy? Maybe what is natural to us, what comes automatically, is a better guide. How much damage are we doing and how much more difficult are we making our lives than we need to? We are much more secure than our ancestors were, especially from predators and natural dangers, but we are ravaged by mental illness, addiction, and suicide. In effect, we have summoned new monsters to take the place of the old ones. Among other things, the problem is that we were adapted to living under threat of the old monsters, so our instincts were aligned correctly, and the policy of doing what you feel like doing was generally appropriate. Now we don't know what to do, and it seems that everything which feels good is a vice. We must therefore militate constantly against our own impulses and natural tendencies. It's exhausting. I proposed a general principle for conscious animals, that when they are in a stable environment to which they are adapted, pursuing what the individual wants is the ideal lifestyle to adopt. But what about violence and aggression? Does the principle apply here? War is common to man and chimpanzee alike. The wars of our more distant ancestors, as among recent tribes, are of a relatively small scale, Perhaps the territorial disputes of street gangs are a good analogy of chimpanzee wars. In large-scale modern wars, the mobilization of infantry in the hundreds of thousands requires top-down planning and coercion by powerful authorities. But gang warfare and tribal warfare don't need this. Essentially, the membership volunteers itself. There is a spirit of excitement and personal outrage. The soldiers want to make a name for themselves, They want to be a part of the battle, courageous and worthy of respect. There is an expectation of prestige, a good reputation, a positive impression on females. There might also be some apprehension, which is perfectly reasonable. 
In Chimp Empire, we see a patrol of males set out to the borderlands and into the forest outside of their territory. How the patrol gets going without an explicit call to action or direct leadership by the Alpha is unclear. But several males begin to get up and make moves toward going on patrol. They start to get animated and vocal. An individual known as Pork Pie is evidently conflicted about going with them. Nobody does a head count or attempts to pressure anyone else to come along, so Pork Pie has to decide for himself whether to go along despite his fear or whether to hang back. In the end, he follows the other chimps out on patrol, bringing up the rear of the group. That is, until the party begins to delve into the forest well outside of their territory. All of them stalk silently forward, watching and listening carefully. Pork Pie falls slowly behind, then stops. Evidently, his fear or ambivalence gets the best of him, and he turns back alone. Clearly, there are unspecified social pressures at work, but in the end, the emotional drives toward going out or staying back result in a preference which rules the day. This is no different than venturing out onto a long branch in the canopy. It comes with some risk and some possible reward. What can be said about war, though, as it pertains to human nature? In Tribe, Sebastian Younger writes, quote, Given the profound alienation of modern society, when combat vets say that they miss the war, they might be having an entirely healthy response to life back home. Iroquois warriors did not have to struggle with that sort of alienation because warfare and society existed in such close proximity that there was effectively no transition from one to the other. In addition, defeat meant that a catastrophic violence might be visited upon everyone they loved, and in that context, fighting to the death made complete sense from both an evolutionary and an emotional point of view. Certainly some Iroquois warriors must have been traumatized by the warfare they were engaged in. Much of it was conducted at close quarters with clubs and hatchets, but they didn't have to contain that trauma within themselves. The entire society was undergoing wartime trauma, so it was a collective experience and therefore an easier one. A rapid recovery from psychological trauma must have been exceedingly important in our evolutionary past, and individuals who could climb out of their shock reaction and resume fleeing or fighting must have survived at higher rates than those who couldn't. A 2011 study of street children in Burundi found the lowest PTSD rates among the most aggressive and violent children. Aggression seemed to buffer them from the effects of previous trauma that they had experienced. Because trauma recovery is greatly affected by social factors, and because it presumably had such high survival value in our evolutionary past, one way to evaluate the health of a society might be to look at how quickly its soldiers or warriors recover psychologically from the experience of combat. Almost everyone exposed to trauma reacts by having some sort of short-term reaction to it, acute PTSD. That reaction clearly has evolved in mammals to keep them both reactive to danger and out of harm's way until the threat is passed. Long-term PTSD, on the other hand, the kind that can last years or even a lifetime, is clearly maladaptive and relatively uncommon. Many studies have shown that in the general population, at most 20% of people who have been traumatized get long-term PTSD. Rather than being better prepared for extraordinary danger, these people become poorly adjusted to everyday life. Rape is one of the most psychologically devastating things that can happen to a person, for example. 
far more traumatizing than most military deployments. And according to a 1992 study, close to 100% of rape survivors exhibited extreme trauma immediately afterward. And yet almost half of rape survivors experienced a significant decline in their trauma symptoms within weeks or months of the assault. This is a far faster recovery rate than soldiers have exhibited in the recent wars America has fought. One of the reasons, paradoxically, is because the trauma of combat is interwoven with other positive experiences that become difficult to separate from the harm, unquote. Of course, warfare is natural to our species. But ancestral conditions looked much more like the warfare between troops of chimpanzees. As for trauma, consider the critical difference between modern and primitive warfare. The primitive case has the warriors return to a common home, literally. In the modern condition, when the deployment is over, the warriors disperse back into a larger society that is difficult to relate to. This discontinuity is an artifact of our civilization. In the previous episode, I suggested that the increase in prefrontal cortex over evolutionary history should not make a decisive difference in how conscious an organism is. Instead, more prefrontal cortex should increase the amount of control we have over the contents of our consciousness. We have the capacity to do more work with the contents and to direct them about in the way that we can voluntarily move our limbs around. This means that we should be less constrained by our drives and impulses than animals with smaller prefrontal cortices, say dogs and cats. I think the benefit, evolutionarily speaking, is that we are able to act in accordance with a broader array of values. Just like pork pie trying to decide whether to go along on the patrol, there are value propositions in conflict, and given all of that, a behavioral decision must be made. For the human, the same is true, but there are even more potential values to consider in taking action. But I think it is evident that we are now in contact with too many variables. We are overwhelmed and bewildered by it all. And this is not the environment to which we are adapted. We are a long way from home. Our feelings and preferences are no longer sufficient to guide us. In fact, they often lead us in exactly the wrong direction. If Younger is correct in saying that it takes 25,000 years for humans to adapt to their environment, how can we adapt to an environment whose changes are noteworthy and disruptive in a single generation? How can we pursue happiness when all of the things which deliver it to us are lost in a distant era? We are the remnants of a million lost tribes, huddled in the refugee camps of modernity.